Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's Jeff Wilson speaking. Uh, I'm the chairman of WAM Leaders. Thank you very much for coming on to this call today. Um, as you're aware, it's your company, uh, and we're here um, you know, here to communicate with you and and take as many questions as you have. Um, you know, it's been a a well dramatic, dynamic, or, or you know, a tough 2020. Um, Matt uh, helped and, and Johnny Ayub, um, who are the instrumental guys in terms of managing the WAM leaders' money, um, they will give you a little bit of a, a rundown of what happened last year. But probably more importantly, you know, look look at the next 12 months and, and what they're seeing um, and how they're positioning the portfolio uh, for the you know, for the next 12 months. You would have been aware that the now, WAM Leaders Board met last week um, and thought it was uh, pertinent to announce the final dividend uh, a little earlier than usual. That was the 3.25 cents fully franked, together 6.5 cents fully franked uh, dividend for the full year. You know, a very attractive yield on the current share price. And the reason why the board you know, wanted to communicate that clearly to shareholders is you've seen... You know, with the banks, you know, uh, various companies cutting their dividends or deferring their dividends, um, WAM Leaders is in a fantastic position that they could you know, continue to grow their dividend, and, and, and that's, that is the plan. Um, what I'll do is I'd like to pass over to Matt now, who'll take you through um, you know, or, or reflect on 2020. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Jeff, and good morning, everyone, on the call. Um, I thought we'd step through the year that was just briefly, just to give you any, um, some some of the process uh, involved in, in in going through the portfolio. So you remember the first half of the calendar, uh, sorry, the financial year was we had a bit of reflation going back on. Economic activity was picking up, um, things were looking quite good. Um, in the background, you had the, the Fed tapering, so they were winding back their balance sheet, and everything was looking pretty good. In October, we went quite bullish on the equity markets, and the reason why we went bullish was the Fed stopped their tapering and launched a repo program. A repo program is effectively providing liquidity in the short term, so what this did was give us a lot more imperative to invest in equities. So we positioned the portfolio quite aggressively, uh, ran our cash down. We were positioning a lot of the risk um, on names and in particular, uh, a lot of the names linked to China. So iron ore was a real key driver of that first half performance along with the big healthcare companies, including CSL. So we rode through that period. We were outperforming quite well. We're about 350 basis points up after the first half. And then if we look into the second half of the financial year, kicking off in January, we saw January had an extreme point in valuations. That Fed repo program was injecting a lot of short-term liquidity and, were, and that was pushing up equities. So, so we began to take a little bit of a risk-off uh, approach within the portfolio. And then, as you would have seen, in February, the, the virus, the coronavirus impact started to spread globally 
and we went into a severe market correction as a lot of people took a lot of risk off the table and the speed and depth of it was incredibly quick, predominantly because the market was inflated before this and because we just didn't know the duration of these impacts. So what we did with the portfolio within WAM leaders were quite nimble and active, so we identified the risk potential and unwound a lot of our risk within the portfolio. We added a lot of stocks as well, in particular gold after the initial fall. What you see with gold is when gold is traded in the short term, when people want liquidity, people sell gold. So even though gold is a good defensive hedge, initially gold got sold, so we waited for that to clear and then we positioned quite heavily in gold companies. We also went very deep within the consumer staple space, so Woolworths and Coles, because we identified the trends early that a lot of people were spending extraordinary amounts of money within those networks, predominantly because you couldn't eat out and you had to buy a lot of food and they were the only places really open um, on a continuous basis. So. That was another trade, and we continue with the iron ore trade as well. So iron ore, we were monitoring throughout the coronavirus spread the inventory stocks within the ports and also the utilisation within the steel mills, and they remained very strong. So we held on to our BHP, Fortescue and Rio and actually increased these weightings throughout the market downturn. So with all those things in play, we managed to perform quite well in the second half. We got a lot of our stocks re-rated. And then, I guess, in the depths of the crisis, a lot of opportunities stood out. There were a few I'll mention. One was Star Group, the casino operator in Sydney and Queensland. That was trading well below its net tangible assets at a point in time. So the, the stock price was less than the, the, the book value of its assets, which in market dislocations, you get these incredible opportunities, and that was one. Another one was Centre Group, which is the shopping malls, uh, the Westfields. That was trading at all-time lows, so we picked up a lot of those. Another company, Stockland, was trading at its 1991 level, so that was the last recession in Australia. So these opportunities present themselves in dislocations, and we took advantage of that. So probably the, the more important thing is that the year ahead, where do we go from here? And, and this month, we're in a, a real testing phase the market is being tested by the coronavirus spread. We're having second waves, and this will be this this month will dictate how the rest of the year finishes in in, in our view. If you get local containment and economies or states don't have to go into wide down like long term shutdowns, the incredible policy support behind it will allow equities to rally. So I don't want to get too bearish in the short term. But we're, we think this, this month is definitely a testing phase and the risk in the short term is to the downside, but I think it would only last for a week or two um, before you get the second wave of policy support. So if we have a second wave, we will get a second wave of policy support. So that's why you can't get bearish long term, but you can get bearish in the next week or so um, as we go through this phase to see whether local containment works. But whatever environment we face, we'll position for that. And I think when I look at the positioning at the moment, 
we're quite neutral across most sectors. We're finding a lot of opportunities still within select names. Um, but the real embedded trade, I think, that's left in the market because valuations are expensive is financials. And we're just waiting on the sidelines ready for this trade to open up. But if you do get a glimpse of local containment on the virus, you'll start to see bond yields go up and the slope of the yield curve will go up, which is great for financial companies. So that is the trade that we're watching and that could be a key trade over the next month or two. Um, that's, to me, the only real embedded trade left that's at a real price difference to um, the current market, whereas the rest of the market is quite expensive across most sectors. Um, I, I guess the tech sector you would have seen is having a great run as well, especially in the, the US. As we get low interest rates, those companies go up. Um, that environment is likely to continue for the next week or two. But again, we're just watching some of the uh, key data points out on, on economies as they reopen, and they're all looking quite supportive. So I guess the overall message is short-term, a little bit concerned, but medium to long-term, actually quite bullish, uh, given the incredible policy support out there. Thanks, Jeff. No, thanks, Matt. And in terms of you know, the, the way that yourself and, and Johnny have been able to move the portfolio over the 12-month period um, has really you know, delivered to you know, all shareholders. Um, I think you, know, you outperformed over that period by 10.4%, which is you know, congratulations to both of you because it's, it's no, no mean feat. Uh, and as a large shareholder in, in WAM Leaders, um, you know, myself and everyone else were very much appreciative of that. I, I remember the, the other day, um, yourself and, and Johnny were sort of talking about the hand-to-hand -hand combat. You know, you know, Johnny, do you want to just expand on that, um, you know, on, on that comment? Absolutely. Um, I guess what we face these days is faster information flow. So you're no longer able to set and forget and hope that your stock selections are right and let them play out over, the, over a six to 12 month period. Given the volatility that we face, given the, the, the prevalence of thematic investing, we found that the decisions you make today may be completely wrong tomorrow. And the wholesale movements in markets dictated that we needed to be far more nimble and ruthless in our decision-making process than, than, than previous um, market conditions. So quite often we would be positioned one way and we would have, have to forego our favourite stocks in the portfolio and completely flip the other direction. You know, one day we're defensive and we, we're materially overweight a Woolworths or a CSL and the next day we're selling those to make wholesale changes in the market based on indicators that Matt and I look at on a daily basis to help us try to outperform. So it was, it, was, it was certainly a battle. You're no longer investing on your fundamentals of cash flow and the like on a short-term basis. You're, you're investing on thematics, on large global macro events, and it dictates wholesale changes to the portfolio. So, yeah, there was a lot of sleepless nights, uh, particularly in, in the months of February and March. Um, and as we kind of get to where we are today, we're at a quite a, an inflection point. And even though you, you, you try to take a little bit of time to reflect on FY20, uh, unfortunately, uh, in our job, FY20 is a long time ago. Now we're into the midst of FY21, and we got to, and we got to continue to make those decisions. And 
the outlook is more volatility from our standpoint. We think the markets are, are certainly nowhere near uh, in clear air, and we've got to continue to uh, battle daily with um, the thematic investment and the macro market and, and hopefully continue to make decisions that add value to shareholders. And, and Johnny or Matt, just, just with that, obviously you're trying to buy undervalued growth companies um, and, and trying to find a catalyst to change the valuation. And then with the other part of the money when you're sitting in cash, you're looking for the, those trading opportunities. In terms of the portfolio you know, now, like for the the period ahead, how is it, how is it currently positioned? Given you know, Matt's comments earlier around uh, short-term bearish and somewhat optimistic longer term, we've taken a balanced approach to the portfolio today. So we haven't um, we haven't taken any dramatic directional bets from a sectorial standpoint. What we've decided to do is go and pick pick the best stocks within each sector and uh, try to generate alpha that way. Until we see a clear direction from a macro standpoint, what we're doing is we're taking best in class within sectors and hopefully uh, deriving performance that way. So, you know, within um, within commodities, we'll buy all the minerals because uh, we've got a positive disposition to um, base metals. Uh, within oil, we'll own Santos because we think it's the best in class there. Uh, within uh, discretionary, uh, consumer discretionary sector, we'll buy Star because there's asset backing. So, what we've tried to do is stick to our principles of buying best in class. But what we, what we, and what the way we've controlled risk is by taking a more balanced approach uh, to the overall portfolio. Okay, no, excellent. Um, now. We'll pass over to James McNamara. I know James, he runs our um, corporate affairs area. Um, And James will take us through the questions. Um, I know we've had some questions that have been sent in and there'll be some coming on the line. So I'll pass over to James now. Thank you, Jeff. So the first question uh, from the webinar set is from Andrew, and he's asked, WEM Leaders is providing a fully frank dividend yield close to 6%. How are you able to div- deliver a higher yield than leading large cap peers such as Apic and Argo? Jeff, it may be best if you take that one. Uh, good question, Andrew. Um, now, the Apics and the Argos, um, the more traditional LICs, yeah. they... How they pay their dividends is the dividends they receive, they pay out to you. Um, and they do a fantastic job. Um, they're very uh, cost efficient um, and they've, they've performed over a long period of time. In terms of um, WAM leaders, well, first of all, WAM leaders, I think Africa and Argo are trading around NTA. Um, WAM leaders are trading a little bit of a discount to NTA. So... You know, so that there's, the fact that it's a bit cheaper than its NTA means the yield's fractionally higher um, because of that. But because our yield our yield is quite a bit higher than um, you know, those other entities is because how we pay our dividend, we obviously, the companies we invest in, you know, we get the benefit of getting their fully frank dividends. Um, also, we supplement that by, you know, because... You know, you just heard with 
you know, John and Matt, we do we are very active and nimble in terms of investing in the portfolio, um, and so we're realising profits along the way, uh, and so we pay tax on that uh, any, any realised profit, which gives us some more franking then to pay out the shareholders. So our dividends are a combination of the dividend we receive um, and the benefit of those trading profits. And now at the moment, you know, with the dividend, and we mentioned in the announcement um, the other day that we've got nearly two and a half years of dividend up our sleeve in terms of the profit reserve. Um, So as, you know, we make more profit, you know, then we'll continue to be able to grow those dividends over time. So that's the plan. Excellent. Thank you, Deb. The next question is for John, and it's from Malcolm. Is it better to invest in hedged or unhedged global equities? Thanks, Malcolm. Probably more a question for Katrina, but I guess I guess there's, there's two ways of looking at it. Global equities investing from Australia, you have a natural you have a natural hedge somewhat by uh, owning more offshore stocks um, and then you, you've got the exposure to US dollars or, or Great British Pounds. I guess ultimately it comes down to your own risk profile and um, you know, we can only give general advice on these kind of calls. So I guess ultimately you've got to take a view on the way uh, that you view the Aussie dollar relative to global peers and particularly against the US dollar. So a hedged um, portfolio typically just generates the alpha of stock selection whilst an unhedged Gives you a little bit more um, leverage, so to speak, uh, if uh, if on the direction of the FX movement. So uh, ultimately, it comes down to individual risk profiles. Thank you, John. Next question for Matt, and it's from Frank. How do you view the market situation in September 2020 when we reached a fiscal cliff? Yep, good question, Frank. Uh, it's one we're looking at quite closely. We expect more policy support to kick in. Uh, you would have seen rumours of, I think it was July 23rd, I think the announcement from the federal government. So what we're likely to see is more fiscal policy responses um, and in the US is talk of it as well. So what they've done so far has been incredibly supportive. Um, it's been needed. They will not back out now. Um, they're already too far, too deep, so they will not step away and risk any sort of fallout um, on the economy. That being said, if we get a, a, a great containment over the next month or so, um, the policy might be shorter term, but I think what we're seeing is policymakers are willing to step in and do whatever it takes. Um, we've seen that multiple times and I, the dialogue from central bankers and from uh, fiscal uh, commentators or, or policy makers is they'll do whatever it takes. So the cliff is coming, but I think we'll, I think the second wave of the virus will be met with the second wave of support. So that's our belief at the moment. Thanks, Frank. Thank you, Matt. And the fourth question is for John and from Philip. Any reason why Newcrest over Northern Star? Thanks, Philip. Um, you've, you've found a topic that Matt and I debate quite often. Um, so for us, Newcrest has been a laggard in the gold sector. Um, it's the largest and most liquid, but 
it has probably the most prospective assets within their portfolio. Uh, I think the market's underappreciated Red Chris and Haveron. So looking forward, we think uh, Newcrest, you know, given its lag, its peers in Evolution, Northern Star, um, and Sarazen in particular, uh, we've taken a view that um, we should get some mean reversion, so to speak, and Newcrest should start to deliver, particularly as they shore up the uh, the long-term value in these assets. Sure, there's some uh, some issues in, in Papua New Guinea around a, a, a few of their assets and, and domestically, but we think longer term, uh, Newcrest will continue to outperform, this, will, will start to outperform the sector. On Northern Star, you know, the quarterly update this week was um, a, a positive. Uh, the last few quarters has given us some concern around cash flow, around operations, uh, particularly in, in Alaska and Pogo. So we took a conservative approach around uh, Northern Star. They have disappointed the market over the last 12 months um, on, on a few quarterlies. And with that, the share price continues to rebound. So we took a more conservative view and preferred Newcrest. Uh, we've preferred Sarazen, um, which gives us a, a fair bit of overlap with uh, Northern Star from the, from the, from the Kalgoorlie Super Pit. So our preferences have been uh, Newcrest and Sarazen. Uh, we have played... Northern Star from time to time, along with Evolution, but it's it, it just uh, for us, Newcrest is, is our preferred play right here, right now. Excellent. Thank you, Matt. Um, so the next question is for sorry, thank you, John. Our next question is for Matt um, and from John. Australia is a small economy on the world scale. What are the major international events and trends that will affect our economy and share market? Thanks for the question, John. I guess for Australia, our biggest influence is our biggest trading partner, which is China. So we are really uh, beholden to what the Chinese economy does. And so far this year, it's looking incredibly strong. Uh, policymakers have been helping the economy out. Um, and quite interesting, last week, through official Chinese media, they basically said they want to inflate the stock market. And on that day, the, the Chinese market was up 5.7% and then continued, I think it's up 12% in the last uh, week or so. Um, that, to me, is a great signal. And for us, we're looking at that as more support for the Chinese economy. There was, I think on that day, uh, there was like 85,000 sorry, 850,000 new brokerage accounts opened on that day. The Chinese love to speculate, um, and that is a great sign that the government is going to be there to inflate their asset prices. So for us, that was a, a telling signal, and quite often the most subtle notes or um, speeches or these, these little things you can pick up, you can make a lot of money out of them. So you've always got to be reading and looking at these things because that... I think most of the commentary I've seen haven't picked up on this, but it was out last week and um, it's put a rocket up the Chinese share market. Uh, so for us, yeah, what affects the Australian economy? China. And then you've got to look at the, the traditional macro things like interest rates and the Australian dollar. They are the two big factors we've got to look at. And at the moment, you would have seen yields... Uh, going down, so people are putting money into bonds, are buying bonds because they're fearful of, of equities or risk. 
So that trend is continuing. I mean, in the end, that's supportive for equities, lower interest rates, but at the moment, the fall in yields is a negative signal for equities. Um, but again, it's quite volatile. Uh, what, just a, a, a piece I was reading last night, just showing how short-term the market is. Basically, if you buy a 10-year bond, the, the German 10-year bond, you're guaranteed a negative return. But if you held it over the last three weeks, you're up 12%. So the, the market is very short-term focused, and we have to trade these markets on a very short-term viewpoint at the moment. Um, and hopefully, once things clear and we get back to some normality, we'll, we'll go back to medium long-term view um, investing. But at the moment, the, yeah, the biggest thing is China, FX, interest rates, and the availability of credit credit spreads. Um, they're the main factors. Thanks, Matt. And we'll stay with you. The next question is from Robert. What is your outlook for the banks given high unemployment and loan deferrals? Have the bank stock priced in a worst-case scenario? Um, again, looking on a short-term basis, I think there's some weakness in the Australian banks, and I'm talking real short, like one to two weeks, um, as the Victorian situation uh, puts a lot of fear into how the economy is going to bounce back. And if we get further spread within other states, obviously banks are not a buy. But if the Victorian situation can be contained, the US can be contained, and we start getting interest rates push up and the slope of the yield curve go up, the banks are a buy. So that's what we're watching at the moment. It's going to be a really big cooler the next month or so. Um, but it's too early to say they are a buy, but they're looking very interesting as those things play out. But on the flip side, if the spread of the coronavirus happens in New South Wales at um, a stage where we have to do a lockdown, they are not a buy. So very much on the knife edge at the moment, but the trade we're looking at, they do look like good value if containment can happen. So that's what we're watching at the moment. And on dividends, they're going to be um, obviously reduced by a fair bit. Um, whether they pay them or not or defer them, um, still being debated. I guess I'll be talking with the regulator, APRA, uh, during this process. So um, expect much reduced dividends, if um, dividends at all. Thank you, Matt. The next two questions are on uh, China, and they're directed to John. First, from Daniel, love the hand-to-hand -hand combat paradigm. Excluding resources, how are you positioned with respect to exposure to China, and how do you consider the risks and opportunities in 2021? Um, thanks, Daniel. It's a very topical question. Um, I guess with China, putting aside the political stoush, and I'll come to that in a second, the main exposures that you rightly point out are via commodities, and China being the largest consumer of Australian commodities. Outside of that, uh, there's the A2 milk is probably the prominent way that we're playing it today. Um, demand for infant formula continues to grow. The safety and brand Australia, even though it's a, a Kiwi brand, it's listed here, um, is, the, is, the way to, is the proxy that we're utilising. Moreover, the other ways we get exposure to China into Australia is, um, is the second derivative trade. So if you kind of put, look at Australia in the context of a global um, safe haven, so if you compare the way that Australia has been rather resilient to COVID, in comparison to the US and the UK and other markets, 
Um, we think once borders do open up, Australia will be a large net beneficiary of uh, Chinese money flows. So in the form of property investment, uh, continued property investment uh, in education. So IDP is one I know that the, our WAM, WAM Capital, uh, the boys really like um, once markets open up. So we think Australia will be a net beneficiary when borders do open up of Chinese um, tourism, um, property investment and education. So they're probably the sectors that we'll look to. Um, but there's a little bit of water to pass under the bridge from the political sphere before uh, we see um, those stocks really rally. So you could call out Star, you could call out Qantas, you could call out IDP, uh, the land leases of the world. They're the stocks which are the second derivative to uh, a, a, a bullish uh, China um, Chinese uh, markets in Australia. And the second question, James? Yeah, thank you, John. So the next question was from Yun Hao, and it's drilling into that political dimension with with China tightening up imports from Australia, such as coal and beef, will there be an impact on the performance of Australian companies in general? Uh, Absolutely. So it's a clear shot over the bowels um, of the political powers in Australia from, from from their Chinese peers. So if you look at what the Chinese government have done, or I shouldn't probably say the Chinese government, but just just, just the way that the trade agreements are working as it stands, they've certainly picked commodities um, that can be replaced from other markets. So there's a surplus of coal globally, and cattle can be sourced also from uh, Latin America and other markets. So it's a clear, it's a clear warning shot um, to to Australian policymakers um, to yield, play nice, and we can all move on together. So. Um, we're all going to have differing views on how this plays out. The way we look at it is that there are other commodities um, and assets that can't be replicated elsewhere. So you look at, uh, in particular, iron ore, um, copper, uh, those commodities certainly can't be replaced or, or, or by other markets given supply-side constraints that you're seeing in Brazil or other main producers of those commodities. So we think those, you know, the BHPs, Rios and Fortescues, Oz Mineral, there is a certain, certain level of safety to those companies. Uh, on the flip side, uh, the New Hope, White Havens, um, AACO and the like, they're certainly going to bear the brunt of any sort of dispute that, um, yeah, and even the barley operators, so Graincorp, um, they will face some. They will face some challenges from uh, Chinese policies towards Australian imports. So, you know, there's still a lot of water passed again under the bridge here. Um, the noise won't go away for some time. However, the big Australians are somewhat protected from uh, from a corporate standpoint. That's a great question, John. Next question is for Jeff. The six percent yield uh, mentioned earlier. Does that include franking? And that's from Tim. Look, thanks, Tim. The the actual um, yield, you know, the share price is about a dollar thirteen at the moment, uh, and we're paying, you know, the annual dividend is six point five, which is, I think that's about a five point seven five percent fully franked yield. Now, now that um, that dividend is fully franked. Now, if you um, you know, if you happen to have it in your self-managed super fund and you're in pension phase and you get a a, um, a refund, then that grosses up to about 8.2% uh, in terms of the money you get back as well. 
Thank you, Jeff. Next question is from Chris. WAM Leaders appears very active relative to other large cap investors in Australia. What does that exactly mean for shareholders? Matt, maybe. Active management, it means we turn over the portfolio from time to time uh, more aggressively than a passive index fund or the like. But in, in our instance, Matt and I are both analyst, portfolio manager, and trader. So we're at the coal face day in, day out, and we're trying to identify uh, opportunities. And unashamedly, we're willing to pick up pennies in front of steamrollers, the old analogy. If we can make a basis point for a shareholder, we will. So we're happy to, in that, and that, we have that flexibility within our mandate under the trading side of the, um, the mandate to allow us to trade more actively to make shareholders money. So ultimately, that's, that, that's the decision-making process that we uh, undertake on a daily basis. So we're, we, we are happy to turn over the portfolio uh, in, in pursuit of returns. Thank you, John. Next question is for Jeff, and it's from Mark. The ability of companies to raise up to 25% of capital for selected investors is a dilution of capital and a rip-off for most retail investors. What are your views on this? I agree wholeheartedly. Um, we put in two, um, you, know, you know, we in, in the Murray review, you know, we put in two applications uh, or submissions, just saying during the GFC we we talked about how much retail investors missed out on. Uh, like it was, I think it was off the top of my head, it might have been seventeen billion dollars they um, they missed out on. Uh, now, um, and more recently, I think in the last month, Kate Thorley, uh, CEO of Wilson Asset Management, um, put an opinion piece in the Financial Review, again, um, making the same uh, comments. We are very much for flattening uh, the playing field. Um, to me, it's very archaic, um, you know, that what was brought in and it was, I don't know, if you remember back, but CLERP 1 is when they all of a sudden said you need a prospectus. Um, if you're issuing any shares to uh, any retail investors, which ended up um, cutting the retail investor out from being involved uh, in placement. Well, you had to be, in theory, a sophisticated or wholesale investor. Um, so, yeah, we're 100% on your side. Uh, we think it's grossly unfair. Uh, and any opportunities we have, you know, um, to try to get them to flatten that curve and look after all shareholders. Um, you know, we're, we're probably one of the few institutions um, that was prepared to do that because we just think it's, it's totally unfair. That's great. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, the next question is, is for, for each of the speakers, Jeff, Matt and John, and it's from Alice. What lessons can be taken out of the most recent correction that you can share? Um, do you want to kick off, um, John? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, what we've learned, I think, from this correction, which is different from other ones, is just the speed of information flow. Uh, access to real-time data, um, the ability of governments to address concerns ahead of the curve as opposed to reacting 
So typically in a crisis you have event, economic crisis, then recovery. Um, and the recovery normally flows after governments start to enact policy and stimulus uh, to, bolster, to bolster consumers and, and sentiment. And what we've seen this time around is you've had the crisis, which is um, COVID uh, spreading, but at the same time you've had the recovery underway before you see the reality of the economic um, fallout. So I guess the lesson this time is that we have better real-time data today than ever before, um, and you need to be more nimble and more reactive to that data, and you can't get uh, too complacent reliant, and, and reliant on uh, past crises to, to, to establish portfolio construction. Yeah, I'll just add, uh, Matt, here. Um, I, I guess the lessons is you look back over history and you try to draw parallels like John was mentioning, um, and then you try and work out you try and differentiate the, the situation you're in. And I guess the, the main lesson, if we boil it down to the, the main thing, is when governments step in and intervene in markets, you have to pay attention and remain invested because um, they can have a dramatic effect on asset prices, which we're seeing numerous times now um, through different um, scenarios. And I guess the main difference here was the front-end loading of support, plus we were not deflating a bubble versus other recessions where we've had property bubbles or asset price bubbles. This was a forced shutdown. It was a shorter duration, and there wasn't the pain of deleveraging a bubble. Um, and that's the main reason we, we stayed invested um, but of course, if, if this duration continues, there will be scarring of the economy and, and we will go down that long path of uh, deleveraging, but if we can get back up and running. But yeah, the main lesson is it's an old one, but don't, don't fight the Fed um, remains true to this day. And every time they step in, you really got to go long equities because it's worked um, countless times. And just from my perspective, it, it, it's really being flexible. Um, yeah, you know, is the main lesson. You, know, you collect all the information, as the guys are saying. Yeah, you know, it looked like it was going to. It would take a long time for the market to bottom out, but then just just the speed at which you know, you're collecting new information, as Johnny said, at which the Fed um, and and all sort of um, you know the the fiscal and monetary policy on a global basis was so so swift, and with that new data, you know collect that data and, and then make your decisions with the new data. Don't sort of get caught up in what you've seen historically. You know, be prepared to to change your view. That's what, you know, and, and the great thing about the market is it does humble you. Thanks, everyone. The next question is for you, Jeff, and it's from Michael. Do you think you will be able to sustain the good dividend you are going to pay in October, given that most companies have significantly cut or even suspended their dividend? Um, the, the answer, I'm one of the board members. Uh, my view is yes. Um, you know, we, we would like to maintain it, if not grow it. Now, obviously, it depends on you know, how the portfolio performs over the next six-month period. The board will make their decision um, you know, for the interim dividend you know, when we get to um, you know, to that period, um, 
but yeah, the, the plan would be to, to gently grow the dividend over time. And because we've got already a profit reserve, which has got nearly two and a half years in, um, you know, we could pay a dividend for the next two and a half years without making any more profit uh, at, at the current levels. So yeah, we won't. Um, yeah, we don't need to cut our dividends like uh, other companies may have to. Thanks, Jeff. And the Matt, the next one to be from Larry. Do you think the tech sector will continue to rally, or is it a bubble? Uh, great question, Larry. Uh, one very topical at the moment. Um, one which, um, if we've got one blind spot, John and myself, is the tech area where we prefer companies that make money and have reasonable valuations. That sector does not have reasonable valuations. My thoughts, it's, it's really predicated on this Again, back to the coronavirus, if we get an economic recovery coming out of this, those tech stocks will go down a lot. And I'm talking about those ones not linked to the economy, but just on silly valuations. So, yes, we are in a bubble, definitely in a bubble. The valuations are silly. They should not be where they are. What will pop that bubble is economic recovery when rates start moving up. At the moment... Money doesn't want to move out of equities and they're just buying anything that's supported on long duration. When we talk about long duration, it's companies that have a long growth profile and not really making much money. They're the most sensitive to interest rate movements and that's what we're seeing at the moment. As yields have been falling, these companies have been going up. But um, The NASDAQ, I'll talk about that one, it's the most stretched we've seen in a very long time since 2009 and we're approaching the, the tech boom bubble uh, back in the two, early 2000. Um, so, yes, I'd say we are in a bubble. I don't know when it pops, but it will be quite spectacular when it does pop. Um, but when we have low interest rates, I see it hard. It's hard to see it popping in the short term, but if the virus is contained and, and rates start moving up, uh, look out below on these names. Thank you, Matt. Jeff, the next one is from for you, um, and the question is from Rom. How do you? How will you get uh, WEM leaders to be, to be at one hundred percent of NTA? So, the question there is trading at NTA. Yeah, the um, with. Say, when I flood a WAM Capital, or when we flood a WAM Capital, well, I think I was the only one there then, uh, Matthew, but who's left. Um, back in, you know, back 20-odd years ago, you know, for the first couple of years, that traded a discount, even though we're paying a very high dividend. Um, and over time, you know, after about two and a half years, then it started to trade at a premium. Um, with WAM leaders, our goal will not be getting it to trade at NTA. In theory, it would be um, ideally for it to trade at a premium. Uh, and, and what that is, it really is a supply and demand um, situation in terms of, uh, and, and that happens over time. And as you know, the um, you know Matt and Johnny continue to perform, um, you know, fantastic year last year, significant outperformance. And as we can continue to maintain that dividend, and as 
people see that it's sustainable, then you'll find uh, that people will move out of other uh, entities that may be yielding less um, and, and can't deliver that sustainability of, uh, of dividend. Uh, and then you know, the price will move to NTA, if not a premium. Um, so that's, you know, I mean, we, we've got a quite a detailed you know, shelter engagement communication strategy, uh, you know, which is trying to inform the, the, you know, the people that are currently our shareholders so they understand clearly what we're doing uh, and what we can deliver. And that's one of the reasons why we announced that dividend early because we didn't want anyone selling. And it was interesting that you know, we announced the dividend, the share price, I think, went up five or six cents, um, we, we, which proved that it was the right thing for the board to do the announce the dividend early because we didn't want anyone selling with the expectation that thinking we might cut the dividend or not. Uh, and, and with some of the questions we already had on the call, and these are, you know, these are shareholders, you know, obviously WAM leaders shareholders, are uh, questioning, you know, will we be able to pay the same dividend next year um, or the year after? And, and obviously that is our plan, uh, if not uh, grow it slightly. So as people, as you get the track record, um, as you know, we continue to deliver the, you know, the returns and the yield, you'll find the share price does get to end if not a premium. Uh, and that WAM research, um, that, that was a lot longer. It took us longer to get it to NTA, if not a premium. Now it trades at a, I think it took us seven years. You know, it's, it's, um, now it trades at a you know, 20% plus premium. And I just noticed, you know, while we're talking micro cap, um, you know, is, is now trading at, at uh, quite a premium as well, a bit of a premium. Uh, so, you know, the two of ours, which are the most recent ones, and that really, uh, and that's WAM Leaders and WAM Global, yeah, I'm confident they both will trade at NTAs, if, if not a premium. And that's because they've got newer share registers. They haven't been around for so long. You know, some people you know, don't really understand how we operate. And as they, uh, you know, as they get to understand as well, the share register sort of tightens up. Uh, and we've seen that happen you know, quite a bit with WAM leaders. It did trade at a lot bigger discount you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, and now it's nearly... Um, at NTA, uh, you know, but I would say over the next you know, 12 months, you'd probably see it move to NTA, uh, if not a premium. Thanks very much, Jeff. The next question will be our final webinar question before we move to telephone callers, and it is for John. What emphasis do you put on the international versus domestic earnings of the underlying holdings, and this is from Bruce. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, the easiest way to answer this question is to give you some insight into the way that we make our decisions within WAM Leaders. When we invest, we, we have two approaches, which is a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach in stock selection. And quite often, international earnings falls in that bucket of top-down. So what I mean by that is, Matt and I will canvass a number of factors to identify you know, where we see positive tailwinds uh, from a macro perspective. So quite often we'll say, look, we like the US dollar, uh, we like uh, exposure to the US economy or to Europe or to emerging markets. So that top-down approach will then allow us to go and canvass the ASX to find stocks that have the best exposure to that. So. Then once we kind of drill down on that level, we'll be able to identify stock, stocks within sectors with the right FX exposure or the right geopolitical risk 
to help us identify um, you know that, that international versus domestic trend. So you know we don't start on the basis that we want to get more international or versus more domestic. What we do is we look top down and try to identify uh, within our process where we want to get that exposure. Then we go down, drill down to the stock level, and then from a stock level we'll make the selections based on that. So that's probably the, the clearest way we can answer that question. That's great. Thank you, John, and thank you to uh, to everyone who's joined us on the webinar. There's just under 300 people there. So we're now going to move to telephone callers. And for the phone audience, if you would like to ask a question, you can do so by pressing star 1 on your touchtone telephone at this time. A voice prompt on your phone line will indicate when your line is open. Please state your name before posing your question. Again, that is star one to ask a question, and we'll pause for a moment to assemble our queue. And we'll take our first question. Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yes, can I hear you clearly? Uh, right, uh, Jeff, uh, first of all, I wanted to uh, say I've asked uh, you and Matt for some time about putting the top 20 holdings in, and you've delighted me by putting in 30, and I want to thank you guys for uh, being so uh, open about that. That's much appreciated by myself and I'm sure by many of these shareholders as well. Um, having said that, just a, a, a few comments or questions that I wanted to ask on First one was on two stocks you don't hold in this portfolio are coals and brickworks. And I just uh, noted that your comments were that you have best in class, uh, Woolworths and West Farmers. There's no question about West Farmers. My thoughts on Woolworths have been quite expensive. But that, so if you could just comment on those two stocks first, thank you. That's uh, a coals and I know brickworks are held in one of the other funds. Yep, thanks for the question. On coals, we actually do own coals. It just doesn't come in the top 30 there. We've ramped coals up and down a lot over the period. Coals was almost approaching 3% at one point in time during the crisis. Um, and then we uh, sold it down, and you would have seen a couple of blocks come out from West Farmers, and we took the opportunity to trade around in those. Um, Coles is sitting in our portfolio around 1% of the fund at the moment, so we've increased it again. So, yeah, we agree. Um, I still think operationally Woolworths is better, but you're right, it is more expensive. And I guess with Woolworths as well, you've got the hotels which went into shutdown um, and they're coming out again. So Woolworths traded really well considering the shutdown in uh, it was about 10% of uh EBIT of their business, so um, Woolworths actually traded uh, tremendously well through that period. On Brickworks, yeah, Wham Capital has Brickworks. They did sell out of it, but I think the, they've got another holding in it now. We had other exposures, and again, Brickworks is a great company. Uh, the liquidity for us was a bit low, so that was probably the main reason. We had other holdings. We had James Hardy's um, as our main exposure for a period of time uh, versus Brickworks. Um, but that was the main reason was liquidity. If we took a position, WAM Capital took a position, 
um, it becomes a very large position given the liquidity. So uh, agree it's good business, but just not for the leaders' portfolio at this point in time. Okay, the other question was just on uh, the portfolio construction. Uh, I noticed recently, very recently, that uh, Berkshire now have one third of their assets in Apple, which seem to be fairly high, <laughs> but they obviously back their, back their thoughts pretty strongly. The question was, uh, how many, they've got 42 companies. I just wondered how many, from portfolio construction point of view, how many companies do you think it's ideal to hold, or does it just get too much at some point? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question, and one on portfolio construction, it really changes with the, the market. So when we have great clarity on the direction of the market, we pull in the number of stocks in the portfolio to a much lower number. So it could range between 20 and 30 stocks. That, that's a reasonably concentrated portfolio. When there is a lot of uncertainty and risk around, we generally spread the portfolio a bit wider. Um, just a basic function of risk and trying to manage risk. So it could go out between 50 and 70 stocks. So you'll see us swing the, the concentration around depending upon the underlying dynamics. We'd love in a stable environment, low volatility environment. You'd see the portfolio run between 20 and 30 stocks ideally. Um, as we have greater conviction on the, the the risk involved in those positions, but it's really a function of risk of the market and clarity of direction. And in markets like this at the moment, very much uncertain, we spread it a little bit wider. Okay, just again, thank you very much for the excellent performance and uh, keep up the good work. Uh, thanks for your support. Moving on, we'll take our next question. Hi, um, I'm Pradeep here. I just wanted to find out why you have gone wrong on the Myers and what do you think of the Myers in the long run? Hello? Yep. Well, who wants to? I'm happy to do mine. The, uh, I mean, effectively, yeah. effectively the, our, the catalyst for us, I mean, what we try to do is find a catalyst when we buy a company so you know, that the rest of the market doesn't necessarily focus on and so we, you know, it can give us, it can re-rate the company. With Meyer, the catalyst was the new um, you know, management team, John King. Um, we started buying Meyer like a couple of years ago now at about 40 cents uh, and we understood it was a tough business, you know, so it was a tough industry um, and our view was that John would significantly um, you know, turn the business around, take significant costs out of the business, increase, you know, double the profit and the share price would double. That was that was the you know, theory. Um, now, uh, Meyer makes up, well, it's it's mainly in WAM Capital um, in that portfolio makes up less than half a percent of the portfolio, so it's pretty irrelevant. Um, the and obviously what happened um, was obviously COVID hit, and then the question is, you know, do we sell out or do we hold? Um, yeah, you know, we look through the various um, companies, you know, with the new economic environment that mightn't make it. 
and Myers is one of those that came into that category. Another one was Virgin. We sold out of Virgin, um, and you know we decided you know that we'd ride it through with Myers. Um, so the the mistake was not identifying that COVID was going to that was going to occur. Um, only because we had you know six percent. You know, do, do we sell out at twenty cents? Um, the you know, our view is that over the next few weeks there'll be they'll announce the re, re, refinancing. You know, we still believe John King is doing a, a, a significantly you know, is doing a good job. Um, and currently we're a holder. Um, you know, that's the that's our current view. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Moving on, we'll take our next question. Uh, g'day, gentlemen. Thank you very much. I've been with you people for nearly 20 years now. Keep up the good work. Uh, you've made a great lifestyle. Uh, what is your opinion on, uh, on Santos, which is in the oil and gas sector, and uh, Suncorp? Thank you. Um, Santos, we own in WAM leaders. It's around 3% of the portfolio. It's our favourite exposure within the oil and gas sector. Uh, as you would have seen during the crisis, you had that um, flash crash in oil. Um, thankfully, we were able to pick up a lot of those um, oil names, and Santos is a, is the leader. We just think uh, as far as when we look at companies, we want good management. Big tick for Kevin. He's, he's done a fantastic job. He's got the balance sheet in order. Uh, Santos, if they went through what they what happened this year, a few years ago, they probably would have gone bust. Um, but Kevin's done a great job deleveraging. They've got optionality on a lot of assets, um, onshore and offshore, uh, for us a clear winner in the oil and gas sector. Um, on on Suncorp, yeah, Suncorp's a tough one. In, in that space, so they've got the bank and insurance arm. The bank's doing it quite tough, as we know. Insurance is having a pretty good time. Uh, they've got a new management in there in Suncorp, and um, they're doing restructuring at the moment. So it feels a bit messy for us. We don't own it in WAM Leaders. Our favourite exposure is QBE at the moment. Um, QBE, for us, has got the most upside in the insurance sector. It's got a few catalysts to come out over the next little while as um, the stock had been pushed down over fears around business insurance. We think that outcome will be favourable. So for us, QBE, um, but Suncorp, watching it quite closely, we're not invested yet. We'd be looking for an opportunity. If the price started with an eight, we'd be very, very interested. Um, in the in the low eight, so that's sort of our area where we take interest in Suncorp at the moment. Thank you very much, gentlemen. All the best. Thank you. Moving on, we'll take our next question. Uh, yes, I wanted to ask a question about uh, afterpay. I understand uh, one one of the um, WAM. LICs had uh, afterpay, and they were in the top 20 investments. Do do they still uh, own afterpay? Thank you. Hey, it would be great if we still had the initial 
the initial amount we started with. What was the? I think we we're working out it would be worth. Were you boys on the call when we were talking about it the other day? Uh, no. Does anyone remember the? Thing? No. It, it was. I can't, I can't remember. I think it was. Yeah, it was something like we, we would have had four or five hundred million dollars worth of stock in us. <laughs> um, no, the like Wham Capital um, and Wham Active you know, do have positions in Afterpay. We actually we took some of the placement the other day, the sell down. Um, so uh, I mean, it, it's a Unfortunately, sort of valuations of, you know, like the boys were saying, with technology companies have, have run away. Um, yeah, so you really, the, the, when we bought up to pay in the early days, we bought it more from a from a research perspective. You know, we identified you know the potential growth, and we could see the catalysts that would help help re-rate it. Um, up up around here, it's more for us. Yeah, you know, it, it's hard to find. You know, we're, we're very hard to find the valuations. You know, that that make it um, look attractive from our perspective. So it's more from a, a momentum and trading perspective. That's the other part of the portfolio. You know, that if we can buy something, um, you know, at a bit of a discount, uh, and then uh, make some money from that perspective. So that's yeah, you know, we're holding it, um, but we're holding it. Uh, you know, with that. Uh, ex- expectation or outlook. And again, for the phone audience, that is star one if you'd like to ask a question. Moving on, we'll take our next question. Thanks, gentlemen. Uh, I'm just wondering what your opinion is on uh, aristocrat. Thank you. Thanks. I'll take that one. Um, there's a couple. There's two sides of the business, as, you, as you're aware. There's the land-based uh, slot machines, and then there's the digital business. What we've seen during the COVID crisis is that the digital businesses has been a lot more resilient than a lot of people had um, anticipated. And the uptake of digital gaming um, via phones and, and apps and, and computers at home has shown the strategy that the management team of Aristocrat undertook two to three years ago is starting to pay um, dividends now. So a lot of their games, in particular Raid, are doing incredibly well. and that's the higher multiple part of the business. And so we still think that there is some upside from a valuation perspective on that half of the business. Where there's a little bit more challenge is around the traditional land-based casino business. Now, as we all know, casinos, uh, for the most part, have been shut and are slowly reopening globally. And as they, re- as they reopen, there is limited floor space. So what we're trying to work out now is how does Aristocrat perform uh, in that environment, uh, which may which may uh, stay in place for the next two years. So if you look at that backdrop, it's going to be rather competitive, um, given that most floors are going to be running at 50% of normal capacity. So the view that we've taken is that Aristocrat will be a beneficiary of this. However, the turnover on the floor may be somewhat 
reduced given they participate in the turnover of a number of these machines in the US in particular. So they are best in class today on the land-based side of the business. A lot of their peers, including Cy Games, IGT, Every, um, they will struggle under, struggle under their debt burdens. Um, so we suspect if the if the crash was to if the crisis would last longer, uh, perversely aristocrat will get stronger. Uh, if the recovery would happen a little bit quicker, that may allow some of their competitors to kind of stay afloat and rebound and be a bit more aggressive. So what we've seen today is aristocrat have been very aggressive in supporting the casinos, ensuring that their their machines are the ones that are being are being turned on, whilst their peers are the ones that are turned off. So. Yeah, I think structurally it's it's in a better position than what it was, but the earnings headwinds may be there for some time. So we still really like it. It's just trying to pick that inflection point where earnings and that market dominance kind of coincide together. Thanks, gentlemen. Keep up the fantastic work. Love you all. And we'll take our final question. Thank you. Hello, this is John. Hello. Yeah, we've got you. Got John. Hi, John. The question I would like to ask is, g'day, uh, John's Ling. I was wondering if you, we, we've increased our holdings in it. And uh, I'm amazed at them that they put out, I think, three profit increases in the last six months. Thank you. Yes, uh, um, that, that's that's held in um, in uh, WAM Capital and WAM Research, uh, and it, it's really um, the undervalued growth company um, that the that Oscar and his team identified, and then we could see the catalyst for the the re-rating, and that, that you know, one of those catalysts was obviously the work they get from the bushfires, etc. And you know, we are still holders. Um, the you tend to find with companies, just as you know, you get say one downgrade, there usually be a second or possibly even a third downgrade. Um, you tend to find the companies when they have upgrades, you know, then um, there could easily be a second or if not a third. So we we think it's a very well managed company, uh, and we're comfortable um, with it at the moment. Obviously, the little yeah, you know, could well get to a price where um, you know, it gets too expensive, but the the boys are happy with it at the moment. And I, I think that was the last question. Um, you know, so we have gone over over the hour. Look, thank you all um, for your support, um, you know, and, and your interest. You know, thank you very much for for calling in. If you do, if you have other questions that we haven't answered, you know. Th- this is your company. We're doing this because you allow us, you know, to do it on your behalf. You know, we love investing. You know, we're very passionate about it. Um, we love playing the game and we love winning. Um, and, you know, I can't, you know, thank you all enough to allow us to do that. You know, congratulations to Matt and Johnny, um, who have done a, a fantastic job in terms of, you know, managing this portfolio. To me, it's just a matter of time. Um, you know, before the, the shares trade at NTA, if not a premium, you know, they're, because of all their good work, we've got the base that, you know, that 
we're actually increasing dividends while a lot of companies um, are, are deferring them or, or, or cutting them. So, you know, thanks for your support. Um, and uh, you know, the plan is continue to grow the business, uh, to grow WAM leaders, um, uh, and um, and to provide return to shareholders. Thank you very much. And that will conclude today's conference. We thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.